When Jesus was teaching, he asked the crowds a question. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? And then Jesus answered his own question in front of the crowds. It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Jesus said the kingdom of God starts small, but it grows. It's unimpressive to begin with, but it spreads. And so the kingdom of God should not be judged by how it looks early on. It should be judged by where it ends up. We are looking together at the book of 2 Samuel. And we said last week, this is the place in the Old Testament where we see God's kingdom most clearly. In the reign of King David, we learn about the reign of King Jesus. Jesus came about a thousand years after David. And the New Testament often points us back to David to help us understand Jesus. So we come to this book not just to learn some history. We come to this book to learn what it means to live today in God's kingdom under God's king. Second Samuel begins at a turning point in Israel's history. The first words of this book are after the death of Saul. Up to this point, Saul had been king of Israel and David had been an outlaw on the run living mostly outside of Israel. And it was all because of Saul's jealousy. He saw David as a threat. But David's life changed in a moment. Last week, we saw a man arrive at David's base in Ziklag, and we heard him deliver the news that Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed in battle. The army of Israel had been decimated. And David reacted to that news in a surprising way. At least it would have been surprising to the Amalekite who brought him the news. He thought David was going to see it as good news. His great enemy is finally gone. And certainly if the situation had been reversed and David was dead, Saul would have danced on David's grave. But David didn't celebrate We were told he mourned and wept and fasted. Right at the start of the book, we realize things are going to change in Israel after the death of Saul. And our passage this morning is going to to show us that even more clearly. After the death of Saul, we are dealing with a different kind of kingdom. We're going to pick up this morning at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. And if you haven't found that in your Bible yet, it's page 304 in the church Bibles and page 468 in the large print. 
I'm going to read from 117 right through to chapter 2, verse 11. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan... In life, they were loved and admired, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan. My brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the man from Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead. And the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. This is God's word. And this passage divides into two sections. 
The first section describes how the mighty fall. And the second tells us how God's kingdom rises. And it all begins with David's grief. In last week's passage, we saw his immediate grief over Saul and Jonathan's deaths. Now we hear his considered grief. Verses 17 to 27 of chapter 1 are a lament. So this is a song David composed. He thought about it. He crafted it carefully. And verse 17 tells us David is not just expressing his own grief here. He's providing this as a way for others to grieve. The song is to be taught to the people of Judah. We'll see later in this passage, the people of Judah are David's supporters at this time. So in writing this, David is not trying to win over his enemies. He's not trying to suck up to Saul's friends here. This song is for David's friends. And it obviously became a hit. Because verse 18 says, it's also written in the book of Jashar. Apparently that was a collection of ancient songs. Like a greatest hits compilation. And as we look more closely at this lament, we'll see it's very finely, delicately balanced. On the one hand, David has lots of good things to say about Saul and Jonathan. And there's no doubt he's being genuine. Remember, this is a song for his friends. He could get away with being nasty about Saul if he wanted to. But he celebrates the good things about Saul. And yet, there's great significance in what David doesn't say here. He does not mention God's name once in this song. And the lack of God's name here will be all the more noticeable when we get to the second section of the passage. Because the opening verses of chapter 2 are full of God's name. This is a song about the genuine strengths of Saul and Jonathan. They were mighty men. But it's also a song about the tragedy when God is not the center of a kingdom. This song celebrates two mighty men, but it also tells us that the mighty fall. Nearly every song has a refrain, a line that sums up the message of the song and that keeps coming back in the song. The refrain of this song is, How the mighty have fallen. It appears at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the song. Look at verse 19. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. The word translated gazelle here can also mean glory or honor. A gazelle is a graceful, sure-footed antelope. So whether we think of the animal or whether we think of the words glory and honor, the point is the same. What Israel looked up to, what Israel admired, has been slain. Israel's mighty ones have fallen. What Israel put her hope in 
is gone. And David knows that means shame for Israel. He wishes he could keep Israel's enemies from gloating about it. That's the point of verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those are Philistine cities. And David wishes they didn't have to hear. But of course that's impossible. We learned at the end of 1 Samuel the Philistines already do know. And they have been partying because of it. Verse 21 says that on Mount Gilboa, the shield of the mighty was despised. Mount Gilboa was where Saul died. But David is not just saying Saul's shield couldn't protect him. David is saying Israel's shield couldn't protect her. Saul was supposed to be Israel's shield. When Israel went to Samuel years before this and demanded a king, that's what they wanted. A king to lead them and go out before them. Saul's shield lies in the dirt on Mount Gilboa. And that means Israel's shield is gone. Israel looked to a mighty warrior to protect them. But that mighty warrior couldn't protect them. There's no doubt Saul was a mighty warrior. So was Jonathan his son. David is not exaggerating in verse 23 when he compares them to eagles and lions. Saul was physically impressive. A head taller than anyone else in Israel. He won some impressive victories in battle. And no doubt he brought some prosperity to Israel. Verse 24 mentions scarlet and finery, ornaments of gold. David doesn't have to make up things to celebrate about Saul. He was impressive as human leaders go. In human terms, Saul was mighty. But he fell. And he's gone. And every human kingdom goes the same way. No matter how mighty. It happened to Rome. It happened to the Third Reich. And the Soviet Union. When those kingdoms were at the height of their powers, who would have imagined it? But they're gone. And all those who put their hope in them were disappointed. Those who are putting their hope in the mighty kingdoms of today, they're going to be disappointed too. The people of Israel wanted Saul to be their shield, but he couldn't be. Long before Saul, God appeared to Abraham, who would become the father of Israel, and God said to Abraham, I am your shield. That was to be the pattern for God's people. Whatever mighty warriors Israel might have, her hope was to be in God himself. Israel forgot that. Saul forgot it. And there was only one possible outcome. Saul fell. And Israel's hopes fell with him. What about Jonathan? 
Well, he was a mighty warrior too. He was also a mighty friend to David. He would have been expected to be David's rival. After all, Jonathan should have inherited his dad's throne. But very early in his friendship with David, Jonathan set aside his own claim to the throne. He took off his royal insignias and he handed them over to David. That was a symbolic way of saying, I acknowledge God has chosen you for the throne and I'm stepping aside. Then later when David was falling into depression, when he was worn down by years of running from Saul, we're told Jonathan went and found David out in the desert. And Jonathan helped him to find strength in God. Jonathan was a remarkable man. He was David's greatest friend. They were like brothers. Look again how David speaks of him in verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Those last lines have been willfully misunderstood by some people. They have been taken by some people as a sign that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. But I say those lines have been willfully misunderstood because in the context of 1 and 2 Samuel, they cannot mean that. What David is saying is he and Jonathan shared something more wonderful than sexual love. In the society they lived in, it was understood that sex was for marriage. And marriage was between a man and a woman. So here in verse 26, the love of women means sexual love. David says he and Jonathan had something more wonderful than sexual love. Today, you and I are constantly being bombarded with the message that nothing could be more wonderful than sex. But that just shows how much we have lost as a society. We have almost lost the category of powerful, self-sacrificing friendship, brotherhood or sisterhood. Jonathan expressed his brotherly love for David by giving up his claim to the throne for his friend David and risking his own life to find David and encourage him, even while his dad was trying to kill David. Let's not fall for the lie that sexual love is the greatest love there is. Our society is more sexualized than ever. And people are more lonely than ever. If we accept the idea that friendship means sex, then we're only ever going to have poor, empty relationships. Sex in the right context can be wonderful. But deep 
Friendship is more wonderful. Jonathan was a mighty man. He was a powerful warrior and he was an even greater friend. But he couldn't save Israel. Until Israel accepted God as her king, even men like Jonathan couldn't save it. And maybe this is the most relevant part of the song for us. If we're going to put our hopes in something other than God, we're probably going to look for a Jonathan more than we look for a Saul. Here in Britain, we're a bit skeptical of ruthless leaders like Saul. That kind of person is admired in certain parts of the world, but you and I are more likely to put our hopes in someone like Jonathan. We're more likely to look to a deep, devoted friendship, relationship. If we don't have it, we think it will solve all our problems. And if we do have it, we'll tend to idolize it. And as we've just seen, human relationships can be wonderful. But we've got to hear the message of this song, The Mighty Fall. Even mighty friends fall. Even the best people can't save us. They can't make us secure. That's the message we've got to take from Saul's kingdom. He was powerful, but God was not with him. And so even the goodness of Jonathan couldn't save Israel. There's a little comment in verse 21 that sums it all up. David says, the shield of Saul is no longer rubbed with oil. Literally, the text says, no longer anointed with oil. Shields at this time were made of leather, and oil was used to preserve them. But oil was also used to anoint kings. The oil was a sign of God's favor and his presence. Saul could have had that. He was anointed at the start of his reign. But he defied God. And he died without God's favor and God's presence. David's song has described a kingdom without God. We noticed earlier, God's name doesn't appear in this song. And without God, the strongest and the best people couldn't save Israel. And so the song ends in verse 27. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Israel didn't have God. They had to rely on Saul the strong and Jonathan the good. But those mighty weapons perished. Israel needs a different kind of kingdom. And so do we. If you're putting your confidence in anything other than God, one day that thing or that person will fall. They will fail you. But in chapter 2, we begin to see what we need. As we begin to see 
God's kingdom rises. After not hearing God's name in the previous section, suddenly it's all over the place. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. The Lord is with David. And we might have assumed David would saddle up and march out to claim the throne. After all, God has already promised it to him. But David understands what Saul never did understand. David knows that Israel's king is to reign under God's authority. In Psalm 25, David prayed, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. And here we see David living out that prayer. We're not sure exactly how he went about this inquiry, but he has a general plan in his mind going up to a town in Judah. He asked God to confirm whether it's the right plan and also to show him which town in Judah. And if the refrain of the last section was, the mighty have fallen, the refrain here is, go up. We find it five times in verses 1 to 3. Saul's kingdom fell because he tried to grasp hold of power and to elevate himself. David refuses to do that. But God is raising him up. What David is doing is being careful to listen to God and then to obey him. And that is one of the key things about God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, God's word is heard and obeyed. God directs David to Hebron. And verse 2 tells us, David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Two of David's wives are mentioned here, and we will meet five more of them in chapter 3. Polygamy was common practice at this time. But the Old Testament shows us again and again it never worked out well. And by the time we get to the New Testament, God makes it clear one wife or one husband is to be the limit. But the focus here is not on the size of David's family. The focus is on David's obedience to God's command. He goes to Hebron with his men and their families. At the last count in 1 Samuel, David had 600 men with him. And when their families are included, there could have been several thousand people with him. David and his men are obedient, and the men of Judah are obedient too. We're told they come to Hebron and they anoint David king over the tribe of Judah. It's important to realize they are not choosing David as king here. They are agreeing with God's choice of king. David was anointed by Samuel years before this. 
Here, the tribe of Judah is publicly recognizing God's choice. We need to remember, too, there are 12 tribes in Israel. Here, David is recognized as king by one of them. It's a small beginning. But remember what Jesus said. That's how God's kingdom starts. Like a mustard seed. Hardly noticeable. But it grows. Because God makes it grow. Saul's kingdom was very different. Saul's kingdom started big with a fanfare. He was crowned in front of all Israel. But he fell because God wasn't with him. David starts with just one tribe. But he has God. The kingdom of Jesus Christ started even smaller with 12 men. But the New Testament records how Christ's kingdom spread across the world. And it's still spreading today in very unlikely places. A few weeks ago, I heard a speaker from Iran. He grew up there at a time when no one wanted to hear about Jesus. He told us that in a normal year, one person would become a Christian in Iran. In a great year, it would be two people. But in the last few years, around a million people have become Christians in Iran. And the strange thing is, that growth has happened when Christians are facing the most persecution in that country. It was in the days before the persecution when people didn't want to know. God's kingdom often looks small and weak. But God will build his kingdom. He is building it. And here we're being shown one of the characteristics of the kingdom. In God's kingdom, God's word is heard and obeyed. That's what's going on at Hebron. God's king is acting in obedience to God and God's people are being obedient too. And if we want to be part of God's growing kingdom, then we also need to listen to God's word and obey it. We learn here that God's kingdom is also a place where grace is offered to all. Look in the middle of verse 4. When David was told that it was the man from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul your master by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. The background to this is that Saul's first act as king years before was to defend the city of Jabesh Gilead. They were under siege from the Ammonites, but Saul brought his army and he delivered them. After that, things went downhill very quickly for Saul. Within two chapters, 
He had defied God. But the people of Jabesh Gilead stayed loyal to Saul. It's not surprising. And when Saul died, they risked their lives to rescue his body from the Philistines. Bring it back to Israel. These are Saul's hardcore supporters. So we might expect that David would steer clear of them. Or at least wait until he had more power before he tried to make contact with them. But he sends messengers right away. He commands them for their loyalty. He's impressed by it. He prays for God's blessing on them. And he says, Saul is gone. I'm the king now. You need to join me. Verse 7. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead. The people of Judah have anointed me king over them. That's how the grace of God's kingdom works. No one is ruled out. No one is too far gone. And when people do good things, it's good. Even if they're not in God's kingdom. And alongside that openness to everyone, the message is, God has chosen his king and you need to submit to him. Everyone's invited into the kingdom but the way in is to acknowledge God's king. That's what David is saying. And Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, said, no one comes to the father except through me. Whatever kind of person you are, whoever you have been loyal to in the past, God invites you into his kingdom. But to enter his kingdom, you have to take on a new loyalty. You have to accept the authority of God's king. The New Testament tells us God has exalted Jesus to the highest place. It's God's will that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's kingdom is a place where grace is offered to all. It's also a place where a new loyalty is required. David has promised to show kindness and faithfulness to those who come under his kingship. And we might think, well, who would turn down that offer? After the failure of Saul's reign, who wouldn't come over to David? Well, look at verse 8. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Earlier we noticed that God's name didn't appear in the song about Saul. Then it was all over the verses about David. 
And you'll notice that here, when this rival king is mentioned, God's name is again suddenly missing from the text. God is not with this rival kingdom. Abner is Saul's cousin. And we're going to hear plenty more about him in the next couple of weeks. And here he takes what appears to be the one remaining son of Saul and he crowns him as a rival king. Now in reality, this is all a bit pathetic. Abner announces him as king over all Israel, but we already know that's not true. And Ishbosheth himself really is a pathetic figure. He's 40 years old at this point, but he appears to be completely passive in all this. We're told Abner takes him and makes him king. It's almost as if Abner throws him over his shoulder and carries him off and then plunks the crown on his head. This rival king is a pathetic alternative. But some people do follow him. And he illustrates a truth about God's kingdom. Some people will choose even the most pathetic alternative rather than accept God's king. When Pontius Pilate brought Jesus in front of the crowds in Jerusalem, he said to them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? On that day, the crowds were faced with the man who had healed their sick relatives. He had reached out and touched the most unclean people in society, lepers and prostitutes. He had shown his power to heal and to make people new. The crowds had seen Jesus do it with their own eyes in their own villages. But they shouted back to Pilate, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. They chose a terrorist who has now faded completely from history. He was a pathetic alternative. But they chose him rather than submit to God's king. Earlier we saw the outcome of putting our faith in mighty men rather than God. But how many people put their faith in things that are not mighty by any definition? Plenty of people are willing to admit they live to shop or to party or just to sit in the pub. They will fill their minds and their time and their thoughts with just about anything rather than stop and consider Jesus Christ. But that's so foolish. Here in Israel, Ishbosheth is gone by chapter 4, while David's kingdom keeps on growing. That's how it goes with every alternative to God's king. Sooner or later, they go, they vanish into history. The world forgets that people used to invest their time and their attention in those things. But God's kingdom 
keeps on growing. So let's not be waylaid and distracted into giving our loyalty to alternatives. Let's give our loyalty to God's kingdom and to God's king. It's the only thing that lasts forever. And let's now respond to God's word together by praising God's king. We're going to sing, crown him with many crowns.